What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. The wars would stop on the battlefield so that everyone would listen to the BBC in Pashto and in Persian to find out what was happening on the battlefield. And of course, my dispatches were translated often by a man, so they thought Lise Doucette was a man. He goes, oh, we want the BBC, but we don't want a woman. And then I don't know where I found this, the composure to think. And I said, okay, well, I will come. I will dress like a man, but I will come as the BBC. And he goes, okay, fine. For me, that's what defines journalism, the kind of questions we ask. Because in choosing the questions we ask, we're choosing the answers we want to hear. We're choosing the stories we want to tell. Hello and welcome to the final episode of this first series of How I Found My Voice, a podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed. This podcast is all about going behind the celebrity to understand how they came to find their voice and what influences shaped them from growing up in a small rural town to becoming a globe-trotting and renowned foreign correspondent in some of the toughest war zones of the past 30 years from Afghanistan to Syria. Let us know what you think by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and tweeting with the Intelligence Squared hashtag IQ2. My guest today is cringing at the very idea of being called a celebrity sitting in front of me. Lise Doucette is the BBC's chief international correspondent, one of the most respected and I think loved voices in broadcast news with multiple awards. She's been the BBC correspondent in Jerusalem, Amman, Tehran, Islamabad, Kabul and Abidjan. And I first remember Lise coming across you in the late 1980s and what I thought was your first BBC posting, but it wasn't. It was in Kabul, living in a bunker covering the Civil War. And I remember thinking, who is this amazing woman in one of the most dangerous places on earth? Since then, you've shown no sign of stepping back from dangerous places, especially in the Middle East, Syria, Yemen, the Palestinian territories. You're trusted by all sides. And I've seen you interviewing the leaders of Middle Eastern countries, but also focusing on the stories of ordinary people, especially women and children. Um, Lise, you've transformed the idea of foreign correspondence as necessarily macho and male. 
Lisa, I think we're lucky to have got you. Well, first of all, uh, since it's all about finding your voice, I'm voiceless and wordless <laughs> that after this extraordinary intervention, most of all starting by describing me as a celebrity. And I think that's the last thing I would describe myself as in terms of my own voice. I see myself as the voice of, well, we, what do we say? Every woman, every man, every person, just hashtag just a journalist yeah. in the field with this extraordinary passport called the BBC, which has allowed me to travel to places. And when, Samir, when you asked me to be on this program uh, about voice, I thought, oh, it's not just about the voice for broadcasting. I actually physically almost lost my voice that I suddenly started not sounding the same. And people listening to me on the radio would say, what's wrong with Lise Doucette's voice? So I went to to get this operation where they put a camera down your throat and they found out that one of my throat valves have stopped working. So your valves are supposed to come together and mm-hmm. mine were not really coming together. So over the past year, going to the NHS, working with speech therapists, I've had to learn how to really to get oh. to bring back my voice. And you've brought it back. It's almost there. It's almost there. It's much, much better than it was. How, how did it so happen? I only have one throat valve working. Was that through overuse or what? I don't know. They don't really know how it, how and why it happens. And then it doesn't really happen that it comes back. But the doctors looked at it. I had another scan recently and they said, well, you're managing. It's coming to, you know, the valves are supposed to come right together. They said it's almost coming together. So my poor one poor valve is working over time and the other one's become lazy and it's not working at all. I'm really glad that they're they're both looking like they're working again. One of the things that everyone notices about you is your unique Canadian accent. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're not a celebrity and you never behave like one, but you're even affectionately parodied on the BBC comedy show Dead Ringers. You're from a small town called Bathurst in New Brunswick. What was it like growing up there? It was a small town on a little bay on on the edge of Canada. uh, Which side? Which side? The East Coast. So when I was growing up, it was about... 60% 60% French and 40% English, basically divided between Protestant and Catholics with a sprinkling of a few Jewish families who kept their faith really quietly. It was the kind of upbringing which, when people today ask me about religion, because I tend to go to places where religion is not just faith, it's it's an issue, yes. a defining issue, and a divisive issue. And for me, religion, growing up where I did, is community. It's people coming together at all the important rituals of life, of baptisms, of, of weddings. What was of your funeral. religious upbringing? I grew up as a Roman Catholic. So, you know, I went to a Roman Catholic school, so I was taught by nuns, Sacred Heart School, and we played against the girls who went to the Protestant school. And religion is just the way you live. It's how people live and, and live together. So I didn't see it as something divisive. I think in that sense, I lived a charmed existence in a very small town in a far away place. And, and to this day... When people say to me, well, these, what are what are the skills that, you know, you have all this experience and these honorary doctorates and, you know, what are your skills as a journalist? And I say, if I have any skills as a journalist, it is because I grew up in a place where people don't shut their doors, where you have grandmothers saying, just be nice to everybody, you know, live by the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. So I tend to... Go with a smile. You know, mm-hmm. we, I'm off, my producers have this message from me, please tell me to stop smiling because you'll be in a place, you know, five miles from Islamic State and you're smiling. And my producers, stop smiling, please, because you give a wrong, a wrong impression. The, the irony is that people always say, oh, please, you go to such dangerous places. But I don't think of them as such 
dangerous places. There was one time when I went to Damascus. And so my, I arrive in Damascus after crossing the border from Lebanon. And my first tweet is, great to be in Damascus. And all of a sudden, there's a flood of people saying, what? What do you mean great to be in Damascus? Oh, what? It's so dangerous. And I thought, my God. They, you know, because I love going to Damascus. Yeah. I've been going there since '94. I have friends there, yeah, and the places that re- places and people and moments which which resonate with me. So my first thought when I go to Damascus is not of the danger; it's of a place which is part of my personal as well as my professional life. So I've stopped saying it's great to be in Kabul or it's great to be in Damascus or Baghdad because I realize if you send it out to the world, people misunderstand you. Yeah. What sort of family life did you have? A big family, six children. So also you grow up having to negotiate your place in the family. Where were you in the order? I'm the the oldest girl, but this is the second. And to this day, when I buy something, I buy a second one. So, and often then I'll give it to my producer. If my sister's not here, if I see my sister, I'll go. So I buy one in blue and one in green for her. Or if I'm not going to see my sister, I buy it for my producer. You always buy for two or more you know, I was the only one at, when we were doing the Iran nuclear talks, and you know, at the, I would go in at, at lunchtime and I would buy for everyone. You know, I buy sweets and flowers and it's just, you know, I sometimes say to, you know, friends who live, we don't, I don't know what the right word is now, whether to the south or to other parts of the world, just because I have a Western upbringing doesn't mean I don't have a big family, mm-hmm. that I don't have family values. And I also, and that I don't think of the community, you know, they think of us in the West, that we're very insular. We are very self-centered. And of course, we probably are a little bit of all that. But we also have a great capacity for thinking beyond ourselves, mm-hmm. of sharing, uh, of trying, of that, thinking of the, the, the bigger and the better okay. good. School, what were you like at school? Wow, this is really, uh, this is a lot of information, Samira. <laughs> this is like telling, um, I was naughty in in my secondary school. You know, the teacher said, well, Lise would be better at math if she wasn't so interested in boys. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, there was drinking and drugs and going to the town, you know, at very young age. But by the time I got to high school. Which is what? Yeah, 70s. Okay. You know, the 70s, yeah, 70s. I'm not supposed to ask those questions. Uh, I went back to being a very good student and then so graduated with all the honours. And I think it's, again, this is the family structure. You come from a family, you're a church-going family. You could stray a little bit, but ultimately you come come back to, to the fold. Did you know what you wanted to be? For a while I was interested when I was young in being a lawyer, but then my one of my best friends at the time, her father was a lawyer and he was an alcoholic. And that that affected me. And I thought, well, maybe that's not so good. And I don't know at what point I started thinking about journalism, but I did find a late slip in our local library. And I should say that when our when we when my little town finally got a library, I was the first to stand at the door and raced inside. So I was the first one to take out a book, which was about trees. <laughs> I ran into the park next door, read the book on trees, and then ran back in and got a second book on the first day in the library. And I have a late slip for a book entitled How to Be a Journalist. Um, now, I don't have that book, but I have the late slip. So God knows where the the book, the book is now. So that, to me, is my first proof that even as a high school student, I decided to become a journalist. I'm still fascinated to come from this small town and to go out to be one of the most travelled 
journalists out there. I'm just trying to work out how you got there. You went to university. What did you study at university? <laughs> I went to Queen's, which was a big, to this day, was the biggest culture shock for me, even more than going to Africa or the Middle East. So I left my small town on a little bay on the far eastern corner of Canada and went to central Canada, to, to Ontario, to Queen's University, which is a very elite university, I have to say. It was my first mm-hmm. real engagement with the wider world. It was a real cultural adjustment. That, what was your degree? Uh, first of all, political science, and then I went on to the University of Toronto. Once I got to Toronto, which is a far more diverse city, I felt more at home there. And that's going to Queen's opened up Canada for me in the sense of elitism, that the world is a very hierarchical place. But then when I went to Toronto for my master's degree, then suddenly I started meeting people from around the world. And I joined a volunteer organization called Canadian Crossroads International. And to this day, those people that I met at Canadian Crossroads, who were young Canadians going out, they send people to do volunteer assignments around the world. So it's a bit like um, VSO. VSO, yes. So that was it. So I was, so when I finished my master's, I wanted to travel. But also, can I just say, it's interesting how many great foreign correspondents I meet who've had a connection to the NGO world. They want to go out and make the world a better place. And some of them stay in the charity sector and some become journalists. And you're one of them. Well, I think in my case, though, I was clear to me that I was going out to become a journalist because they were trying to find a placement for me. And my first, they first suggested Ethiopia. And the Ethiopians said, no, she's interested in journalism. We don't want her to come. And then there was something in India and I was still finishing my degree. And then they thought with a name like Lise Doucette, she must speak French. So they sent me to Ivory Coast. So I went there and spent four months teaching in a village school in Adzope. And I remember to this day, here I was, young Canadian. I had a degree, a master's degree in international relations with a focus on African agriculture. And to this day, I think, African agriculture? Why was I interested in African agriculture? And I thought, you know, chess puffed up. I'm going to West Africa. I've got this degree. Solve everything. So there I go. And so I'm met by this representative and I'm thinking he's going to ask me questions about my knowledge of Africa. And his first question to me was, how is Margaret Trudeau, who was that time married to, people know Justin Trudeau now, his father Pierre Trudeau, had married this young woman, Margaret Trudeau, who by then was hanging out in Studio 54 in New York and the marriage was breaking down. And here I was in this little village in West Africa and they had this young Canadian there and what they wanted to know from me, forget my master's degree, what is Margaret Trudeau doing? Is she still partying with Mick Jagger at Studio 54? So it was my first kind of real introduction into what are the questions we ask and what yes. kind of information and what do, do people, people want, really to want to hear? How yeah. interesting. I had a lot of young, you know, African graduate students from, from Tanzania, from Sudan in my my graduate class in at the University of Toronto. And years later, I, I, I would joke with them and thinking, what were they must have been thinking that here are these Canadians who'd never been to Africa studying Africa. You know how it is when you're studying, you get you get a sense of yourself, you read so much and you know so much. But in fact, we know nothing at all. We know enough to ask questions. But I thought how, how gracious of them to sit in these graduate classes with these Canadians, pretending that they know about Africa when they know nothing at all. And it was a reminder that those people who know most are those, of course, who are from the area. Of, it's under their skin. And as much as any of us can try, that actually, if it's not our own story, we will never know the full extent of the story. So 
how did you get into journalism and particularly how did you then make the leap to the BBC? Right place, right time. That magical, magical word for a journalist. The BBC was opening its first West Africa office and there I was. Wrong accent, wrong CV, wrong everything. And by some divine intervention, they needed someone to help in the office. And by Is then, Abidjan? in Abidjan, my only journalism experience at that point was one or two articles I'd written for Real Estate News in Toronto. But they needed somebody. And so I started then. And of course, then there was no email, there was no social media. So the BBC used to get these letters saying, who is Lise Doucette? Where is her parents from? Who is this woman? Is she American? Is she? Can't you find British people to <laughs> broadcast on the news? I began with the BBC at the moment when they're, for the first time, they were allowing Scottish and Welsh newsreaders read the news. So when you know, is this? You know, there this was this the... received pronunciation, yeah. which was a southern London, quite posh accent. So they decided to experiment a little bit with Scottish accents. And there comes Lise Doucette from Africa in the middle of this. And this is so, what, the early, mid-80s? The 80s, 82, <coughs> 83. And what were you doing? In so then I was work? becoming, you know, there on the ground saying, here I am, I'm a, I'm, <laughs> the, uh, I'm a journalist. Yes. And so that's how how I started. And so, you know, here I, I still am clinging on. <laughs> what sort of stories were you doing when you Well, this was started? a time when actually, it was a really interesting time in journalism. This was the time that the newspaper, The Independent, was formed. And with with a mantra to say, we want stories on the Af- from the African continent to be on the front page rather than the inside page. We want to do the stories that other people are not doing as much on. And so this was a time where people were becoming more interested in what was happening in that corner of the world. And unfortunately, it was at that time a time of famine in the Sahel in the early 80s, a time of military coups across West Africa. So things were happening all the time. And the correspondent, Alexander Thompson, had to cover some 26 countries. So, of course, he was off and away. And there I was in the office answering the phone. And then so I did a bit of freelancing then for Canadian media as well, but also for for the BBC. So it was real kind of baptism of fire that I quickly had to understand how to report. And of course, I had no knowledge of Britain then. You know, the only knowledge really was watching Mary Poppins growing up. And I still remember, of course, I would listen to the BBC World Service then once I was in Africa. This is London. So I remember my first flight to London, which was a few years later, and waking up in a hotel room in London and opening the curtains and thinking, this is London. And very excited to, to finally be be in London. That was the the nineteen the nineteen eighties and the move to Afghanistan, which is when I first really noticed you, which is you know the the civil war is really um, destroying that country, and of course its legacy is kind of ongoing today. How did you come to take that posting? When I flew, I spent. Can I say you flew out on Christmas Eve, nineteen eighty eight? It's my birthday. I ended up spending about five years in Africa because I'm not one of those journalists who just goes for a day. Whenever I go to a place, to this day. I like to to stay down. In fact, some of the volunteers I worked with versus a a volunteer teacher, when we would visit villages, after a while they said, Lise, do you realize that every place we go, village, town, city in West Africa as we're traveling, you always end up saying, oh, I could live here. And to this day, everywhere I go, somewhere in my mind, I think... Oh, I could live here. Where's the grocery store? Where's, oh, this is a really, really, really nice park. So I ended up staying in in West Africa for five years. Then it was a question of, I really should come to London to get some training. And I couldn't find a way to get here. 
Everyone said, oh, Lise, you're Canadian, you're the right. And there was no way. I was a bit too old for the student visa. And there was no real way. And I just happened to be speaking to a diplomat in Lagos in Nigeria. And he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I really would like to... To, to go to Britain, but I can't find a way. And I'd even done this thing, like out of a William Boyd novel. Someone said, go to an outpost, one of the consular offices in northern Nigeria, and go, an unsuspecting visa officer, and try to get a visa that way. So I went to see an unsuspe- so-called unsuspecting visa officer in the north of Nigeria, and I sat down in front of him, and I, then I said, well, my Catholic upbringing, I said, I'm sorry, I can't lie to you. I really need a visa. Can you possibly give me a visa for London? And he couldn't. So the diplomat in Lagos spoke to the West African Committee of the Foreign Office, and I was sponsored to come for six months to work in London on a work permit. They didn't tell me who did it. Only years later did I meet the person who actually sponsored me. I met her in Jerusalem. She was the ambassador to Beirut. And I said, she goes, Lise, you know, I'm the person who signed the form that oh my, and she changed my life. I said, oh, my goodness, what do we do? Like, oh, what should I do? I felt like I should take her out to dinner or something. So I did get to London. But my visa ended and I had to leave. I literally, at that time, you can't. it's, it's much harder to do it now. I would take out maps and I would think, hmm, where does the BBC not have anyone? And I thought, oh, Pakistan, Afghanistan. And then I went around the BBC's to the Urdu service, the Pashto service, the Persian service. Hi, I'm thinking of going out there. Oh, thank you, Lise. That's so kind of you. We don't, we have enough people. No, no, no. But for some reason, I had a friend who said, Lise, Pakistan is in your karma. So after my six months at the BBC, I said, well, I'm going to Pakistan. As with Africa, no money, real, not really a lot of experience. Because I knew the Pakistan correspondent was coming up. And I went to Quetta. Nobody was in Quetta, which turned out to be the, at that point, you had the so the war against the Soviet-backed government in Kabul, the Mujahideen backed by the West, this cold war going on in Afghanistan. And nobody was in Quetta, which is where Hamid Karzai and other people were based. And I started filing from Quetta. And this is all the kind of Afghan opposition yes, and future the future president yes. And the BBC suddenly, oh, that's interesting, from Quetta. Oh, and then so suddenly my story started appearing on the BBC because no one was in Quetta. Mm. So it was that sort of thing at that point is trying to be finding the gap. And I found this little gap and suddenly said, oh, well, Lise, come, come to Islamabad, start reporting from Islamabad. And, but I wasn't senior enough to get the Pakistan job. And when the Pakistan job came up, the person who got it said, get Lise to set out of here. My partner is going to be doing the freelancing. I don't want her in Pakistan. So I was about to leave and kindness of strangers, someone intervened, got me that golden visa for Kabul. They were not giving visas to the BBC because after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, it became very difficult. So suddenly there I was through contacts, the, the tried and true journalistic way. I got a visa for Kabul and that's why I flew in on my birthday in the harshest of winters, at the end of the Cold War, as this war, the biggest story in the world. Yeah, but also, and I flew to Kabul. I have to reuse that word again, but what a dangerous place. And you're a woman on your own heading out there. Why Why did you go? It was such a, I'd really, I still remember to this day the first Afghan family I met in refugee camp just outside Quetta and was really taken by the feistiness of the women, the kindness of the families. And I became so interested in the Afghan story. And yes, you know, the Afghan Mujahideen, who basically were trying to defeat the government in Kabul, said, oh, Lise, they're going to kill you. Oh, you know, we're about to storm into Kabul. You're going to die. But I I don't know. I just didn't feel I really wanted to go to Afghanistan. After having spending months in Pakistan thinking about Afghanistan, I really wanted to go. So I still remember arriving in this hotel, the Intercontinental, 
dark, gloomy, all the clocks had stopped. History had really stopped. Dark and gloomy. And the guy at the end, out in behind the reception desk said, how long are you staying? It was sort of like in Africa all over again. I thought, am I staying for six days? Am I staying for six weeks? And I said, well, I, I, I'm not sure. You know, six, six, six weeks, I said, and it ended up I stayed a year. And that was a time where within months, or actually very few months, the British pulled down the flag, the Americans pulled down the flag, all the Western diplomats left Kabul to try to put pressure on the Soviet-backed government so it would collapse. And the Mujahideen were outside the city. So the moment was coming up to February 15th, which was the end of the Soviet troop withdrawal. And lots of journalists left and people said, please, they're going, you're going to get killed. You better leave. But I was so, there's something inside you. I often call it this pang in journalists. You feel it in your gut that the Afghans I'd met were, were so kind and I was so committed to the story. I mean, bear in mind that this was a time, this was the golden days of the BBC where the survey said that something like 95.8% of Afghans in the refugee camps were listening to the BBC. And all my dispatches were being translated into Persian and to Pashto. And you really felt, at that time, there was a story, and I don't think it's apocryphal, that the wars would stop on the battlefield so that everyone would listen to the BBC in Pashto and in Persian to find out what was happening on the battlefield. And of course, my dispatches were translated often by a man, so they thought Lise Doucette was a man. But I was so engaged with the story that I decided decided to stay. Uh, and to this day, I still go to Afghanistan. I'm interested in how you operate as a woman journalist in a lot of these countries in the Middle East. And in that sense, what kind of voice you developed? Because I was thinking of, you know, the interviews I've seen where you, you, know, you wear a headscarf and you're then interviewing the presidents of these countries. And they all know you and they all respect you. That really comes across. How have you cultivated that relationship and that sense of a voice that you know who you are and they respect it? Well, I think it's important to remember, back to our where we started, that we're, we are hashtag just journalists. We're not celebrities. We are not the story. We are there to ask people questions. For me, that's what defines journalism, the kind of questions we ask. Because in choosing the questions we ask, we're choosing the answers we want to hear. We're choosing the stories we want to tell and who we want to speak to in order to get those full stories you know, you mentioned I wear a headscarf. You know, my view on this has always been, and it's 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 something that women discuss a lot. But you you do it with no fuss. I mean, yes. in a way, it's not to because draw my, attention to the because fact. Because I don't. Because I think my job is to get them to talk to me. Yeah. And if they're going to focus on my legs or my hair, that gets in the way of what I want to do. And I don't have. You know, I'm not going to wear a burqa. I'm not going to wear black. But I will wear a headscarf. I dress conservatively anyway, quite frankly. It's a version of what I wear in, in Britain. And so that we can focus on what I want to do, which is to ask them questions and get answers from them, and they can focus on what they're going to talk to me about. So, Do you think that there's this some idea of, you know, the honorary man, that some yeah, women they, in, in the Middle East feel that that's the status they have? It, would that be appropriate? Well, people have come up with different phrases, and you keep thinking about these phrases and thinking, we should, is that really the, is that acceptable now in the way we think of our of language? So when I was in Pakistan, so that was in the in the you know late eighties, early nineties, people used to talk about the third gender. You're not treated like the women of the country that you're reporting from, but you're not treated like the men either. So you have this special status, neither male nor female. But also for all of the criticism of Islam and the more say, the, the harsher, stricter interpretations of Islam. There is also, as you know, the thread which talks about respecting women. In some cases, it can yeah. turn out to be suffocating women. 
But in my case, it was that you would get the first seat on the bus, the first seat in the helicopter. And believe me, there were times when I didn't want the first seat in the helicopter. But they take care of you. They make sure that you don't come in harm's way. And I ended up spending five years then in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran. And in that time, the only time that was really a significant time where my gender got in the way was in 1992, before the fall of Kabul. The Afghan Mujahideen had taken a big city, Khost, in the east of Afghanistan. And there was uh, the group that won that war. They're now on the terrorism list, but at that point they weren't. So they called the BBC office in Islamabad. Hello, we've just had this major military victory in Khost. I said, yes, it's extremely important in the war. They said, we would like the BBC to cover to cover this. And I said, great, we want to cover it too. And he goes, wow, so who's coming? I said, well, me. He goes, oh, we want the BBC, but we don't want a woman. And then I don't know where I found this, the composure to think. And I said, okay, well, I will come. I will dress like a man, but I will come as the BBC. And he goes, okay, fine. So I went, and we have still have pictures to this day where I'm dressed in the shawar kameez with my hat, my hair up in, you know, under the, the, the chitrali hat that's quite well known yeah. now for in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And as we were driving in, my Pakistani colleague said, the guys in the pickup in front of us are discussing whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. But I also still have to this day a photograph. When we met this guerrilla, this Mujahideen leader with, you know, his big white, in fact, orange beard, they sometimes painted orange, you know, as a sign of of respect. The big press conference, lots of men, and me dressed as a man, and I got the seat right next to him. So I was dressed like a man, but given all the courtesy to a woman that I would get the best seat in the press conference. And this is why we say with some of these groups, it's changing now because groups are becoming more extremist, is hospitality over ideology. It was a very pragmatic and practical solution to a problem. I wanted to report on that story. He wanted the BBC, and we found an accommodation where I didn't feel disvalued, and neither did he. Recently, you've spoken about the importance of kindness in war reporting, which is not a word that most people associate with war reporting. What did you mean? I sometimes joke, and it's not completely a joke, that journalism is an excuse for bad manners. That we do, we think, oh, wow, I'm so important. Oh, I'm covering the story. Oh, this is, you know, here I am. I must, must get the story. And that the story matters more than than anything else. And I think we, we have to be humble. It is just a story, and it's not even our story. And the countries we are covering are not our countries. We're there often because of the kindness of strangers and the people that are around us. And the there are also cultures that have a very are very sensitive to the interaction among among people where you know, if you go to Afghanistan, you say, you know, in the West, we say, hi, how are you? In fact, you say, hi, fine. You don't even wait for people to say, how are you? But if you go to Afghanistan, you know, there's a whole ritual of way you treat people and guests. And and I think we have to learn to respect a bit of the traditions. We are journalists. We're there for a certain reason. But I think manners matter a lot. Hello, thank you, please. Often I've sent emails to people thanking them for an interview, and they'll say, oh, nobody's ever thanked me. And I'm just saying I'm not the only one. I know other colleagues who are the same. It's just being a human being. For God's sake, we go into areas 
Sometimes people are in their moment of deepest, utter grief, and we stick a microphone in front of them and expect them to open their hearts, open their homes, tell us their most intimate fears and worries, and and why wouldn't we show a little kindness? And I, they don't have to talk to us. No. They don't have to talk to us. No. Well, I'm going to say something again. You're not going to like it because it's going to be flattering, but... Watching your coverage from Syria, some of the most haunting of the recent reporting I've seen has been you talking to women survivors of the ISIS occupation who've experienced unimaginable cruelty, you know, the rape, the loss of their loved ones, and the compassion in your voice as you listened, and them showing you photographs, and you genuinely being interested in their family stories. I'm just interested in how you've always seemed to have the right voice to speak to people like that. It's so hard, Samira. I mean, you would know. I mean, when you come to one of the worst things that can happen to man or woman, being raped, I was dreading going to the areas that so-called Islamic State had stormed into, taken thousands of women hostage, kept them as sexual slaves. And I said to my producer, I don't want to do any interviews unless we are absolutely sure we're going to use those interviews. I don't like asking those questions. So when I sat down with any of the women, I would just say, you know, thank you very much. It's been hard. Or how are you now? Something so broad. I never use the R word. And I... I'm leaving it up to you, in other words. If you want to share it with me, do. I'm giving you this. I'm here as someone from the West who has a voice on a, on a big global broadcaster. And if you see me as someone you want to tell your story, that's fine. But I am not going to, with very detailed questions, try to pry it out of you. But time and again, they would open up and their stories would pour out. Because sadly... I went to this area of northern Iraq, to the ancestral lands of the Yazidis, years after the Islamic State had come and gone, where they felt, I've never seen a community which felt so forgotten and so feeling so profoundly that their fate depended on whether the international community would either come and protect them militarily or give literally the whole community visas in order to leave. So they wanted to tell their story. They wanted someone like me to be able to hear their story. So they told their story time and time again. And you feel so humbled. You feel so, I mean, so profoundly saddened by what they've had to go through. Is it also, if I ask, a sense of guilt? Because I've spoken to other international editors like Lindsay Hilson of Channel 4 News, who's covered many of these similar stories for years. And I know once she said, I sometimes wonder if I make a difference, but also that ability to walk away from it, even Mm. though you're doing your job and you're doing it so responsibly. I felt this really profoundly on my last trip to Afghanistan. I often say that the way a country treats women is a barometer of where that country is and where it's going. And in Afghanistan now, you know, 18 years since after the fall of the Taliban, when you meet women and women's groups, either you feel so inspired, they're so articulate, educated, passionate, or you feel so utterly, utterly depressed. And this happened when we went to a women's shelter. Four women bravely said, but with a lot of reluctance, we will we will talk to you. But they had to be, you know, they wanted to make sure they were all covered, etc. And after they pour out their story, which is almost without exception, 
child marriage, beaten by their husbands, imprisoned by their fathers, having to flee, no prospects in sight. Even in one case, a woman who was at the top of her class could have been a doctor in another world. And you stand there and you think, what can I say to them? You know, I ended up saying, if only I had a magic wand that somehow I can make it better. But you leave feeling so depressed because you realize that the, the, the only thing these women have, and it's extraordinary gift that they have, is their defiance and their courage. But life has dealt them such a bad hand, and life will not give them that much better, except their survival and their ability to raise their children, you know, away from abusive husbands, that perhaps there be some light somewhere in that dark corridor, but their life are not going to substantially be substantially different. And you feel... Now I feel so profoundly this gratitude, and I don't say it, people listening, oh, so this is a bit cheesy for these two set today. I come back to London and I feel gratitude the whole time. To be born, you know, in a Western country, which has afforded me the opportunity for education and to travel. I'm a migrant. I came from the far east of Canada and now I travel around the world and wow, I've ended up in London. I live in a safe place in a neighborhood with its trees and is quiet and is peaceful. It's a gift. And then you go to other places. And it's not to say that you can't, if you live in Kabul or if you live in Sinjar in northern Iraq or if you live in, you know, in Colombia, wherever you live, that you can't find joy and happiness and possibilities. But more, more and more, the world in which we live in, where you are born defines your life chances. You always seem, despite the fact that you obviously are left haunted by some of the stories you cover, you do have this positive attitude. We know that post-traumatic stress disorder has affected and does affect many who report from war and disaster zones. And Marie Colvin, mm. um, the late Marie Colvin, who was killed in Syria, was one of them. I wonder how you maintain your balance, because from what you've just told me, it's clear that you do. It's when Lindsay Hilsum and I, I laugh is the, is the wrong word, but she says, you know, some people who run these trauma organizations, provide counseling, they come up to her and say, you have it. You must have PTSD. You must have, you must have. And Lindsay goes, no, no, I don't have it. I tell you, I don't have it. One of the things which helps a lot is when we're in Afghanistan, we work with Afghans and trusted Afghan, Afghans who are friends, Afghan drivers, Afghan producers. When we're in Syria, it's with Syrians. When we're in Iraq, it's with Iraqis and so on. So that when you're when you're arriving, when you're talking to people, when you're arranging interviews, when you're traveling to high-risk areas, they're with you. And you're so profoundly aware that whatever you feel, you're going to leave someday. And that your Afghan or Iraqi or whatever colleagues they are, this is their home. This is where they're raising their families. This is where their future is. And so you go through this together. So in Syria, when we would go through stressful and sometimes dangerous situations, we'd talk about it with us. And the driver would be the one to make what was sometimes life and death decisions. Do we stop at this military checkpoint? Is it a real military checkpoint? Or is this a fake checkpoint? Are we going to be stopped? Are we going to get arrested? It's happened in Afghanistan. I often say the drivers are the most, is the, mo the driver is the mm -hmm. most important person in your team. And then, you know, in trips afterwards, we'll, you know, we'll laugh because we survived. Remember that checkpoint? Remember that time? Remember when we were so racing? It's the kind of the, the camaraderie, of the yes. camaraderie. And you work through it to, to get, remember there was a time we visited a besieged area on the outskirts of Damascus, the camp of Yarmouk, and it was so, so hard to get in there. And finally, through months and months and months of lobbying and pushing, and, and we finally got in, and it was the worst of the worst. Never had we seen such intensity of desperation and destruction. And we came out of it, and we all just 
burst. You know, we just broke down crying. My Syrian colleague, my... And, of course, that's just for us. That's not for reporting because it's not about us. But you you go into the thing, oh, my God, how do people... How do people survive? How do they carry on? But people do carry on. And when you ask me about trying to find the hope and happiness, what I've learned time and again, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, is that you, when you approach these stories, which are the consequential and complex stories of our time, and they don't get much more complex and consequential than Syria or Afghanistan, that if you drill down to it, what are these stories? These stories are about mothers and fathers and children and neighbors and friends and societies. And for me, that has been the way to try to convey to people outside, including my sister who says, Lise, what do I need to know about Syria? It's so complicated. I don't really understand it. It's a story that all of us should relate to, that people get up in the morning, they worry about their children going to school, they worry about whether they have a job to support their children. As humans, we need the, to survive. We need to have a bit of humor, a bit of hope, a bit of humanity. Those are the, the attributes that I find are the shining lights in the middle of such darkness. And I, I look for them wherever I go. And, and what people, you know, editors in the BBC are saying to me now, the news agenda is so depressing. You know, I've started to think we should have positive news on the BBC because it's so depressing. Even I, as a news junkie, find it hard to listen. But that the message we're getting from listeners and viewers is that when they hear a story, they want to leave that story thinking that there's a way out, that there's some hope in that story, that all is not lost. And so I do try to find the threads and you don't make them up. They're there. For those of us who are privileged to be able to witness what are the important stories of our time, it's also incumbent upon us to to look at those as human stories because that is what they are. And that is the best chance of conveying to everyone that those Syria's war is not just about Syria. It was it stopped being just about Syria a long time ago. It's our story too. The Syrians are not out there somewhere. They're down the street. They're in our schools. They're in. They're they're all around us, and we have to understand them because no story now is just within borders. I mean, there's a real sense of responsibility you feel about mm. journalism and what it does. And I'm interested. You say there's always something positive. But what is there positive about a story like Syria? or even Yemen right now? Of course, the overarching story is very negative. These are some of the darkest, most violent stories of our time. But you have to still find ways of reporting on people's courage, how they keep their families together, mm -hmm. how they survive, what is it that keeps them going. And so often the, the light that you find is only one of, of perhaps of courage. But for example, I went to my last trip to Syria, I went to, to Aden. And I met like, all these extraordinary young Yemenis. There was a 16-year-old boy with a with a big grin and a little red bow tie, and he would come and he'd be working in the restaurant because his father was the manager, and he, every day he would be really kind and trying to help us. And then this, the chef was from Syria, and he would stay late to make us falafel and hummus, so we had something special to eat. And then there was a Yemeni who came to work with us who'd been to to Egypt, and he was a contestant on, on Middle East Idol, Arab Idol, so he wanted to sing for us. And all of these people, I thought, what are these extraordinary people? I wish I could show the, put these people on air to say, you know, you, you think that these are just victims, that, these, that you can't relate to them because they look so different from you or I. But in the midst of them are people that are kind of fascinating, full of energy. They want a future too. You've really made that clear. And I want yeah. to force you to talk about yourself and not your stories mm. for my next two questions. 
you're an OBE here, Order of the British Empire, and you were given the equivalent of a damehood, I think, <laughs> um, the Order of Canada in the Canadian government's New Year's Honours list for your services to journalism. What do awards like that mean to you? Well, those awards are a little bit tricky for me, uh, the, the OBE, because my ancestry is that I'm an Acadian which from the eastern part of Canada, and it's one of the little-known parts of British history. In 1755, you know, my part of Canada had gone back and forth between British and French control. So basically you count as British and can get an OBE? No, no. <laughs> no? No, 1755, the British expelled us from our lands. Oh, I see. And it's regarded as the first ethnic cleansing by Britain. And there are Acadians who think we should get an apology from the, from the Queen. Oh. And the Queen did recognise the suffering of the Acadian people, but there hasn't been an apology. So every time I meet a member of the royal family, I feel I should say my people are very thankful that you have recognized our suffering, but so there are those who would like an apology. So for me, and it's not just me, people saying British Empire. I think, is that is it okay for me with my ancestry to accept this? But I'm, you know, back to where we started, I, you know, I think, well, should you really be inducted into the Order of Canada for journalism? This is what we do. We're telling other people's stories. And I think more and more, we also have to ask ourselves, whose stories can we tell? Because we're living in a time where people can tell their own stories. So what stories should I be able to tell? So it's a nice honor. And I think we need to just take them in our stride and remember, you know, who we are and what what our job requires us to do. And no more than that. Okay, cheeky question. Have you ever been tempted to take big bucks and go to an American network? (sighs) I love working for the BBC. I've worked for the BBC from the beginning. The BBC has been my passport to allow me to travel around the world. There has never been an editor in the BBC who said, well, Lise, you shouldn't go there. Not really a place for a woman or you shouldn't uh, do this or that story. I mean, of course, there's been issues throughout the decades of my accent and, you know, competitiveness of journalism. You know, I've had my share of trying to have my voice within many voices of, of the BBC. But I feel very comfortable uh, with the BBC. And if I if I moved it, then I would be thinking that, well, it's a job. But I think it's not really just a job. It's it's how you live. It's your personal life. And, you know, Afghanistan is not just a story for me. It's part of my life. So why would I leave this life? Do you have any regrets? I don't. I can't think of any major regrets. There's a poem, a very short poem by the great Irish poet Seamus Heaney that my sister gave to me when I was at university. And it goes like this. The way we are living, timorous or bold, will have been our life. You know, I framed it and I carry it with me. Everywhere I've gone, I've carried this poem. And I think that's how I continue to live, timorous or bold. It will have been our life. So in other words, you know, don't worry about the small things and the worries and this visa or this story, but just keep going. Just keep going to do the things that you think matter. And hopefully they'll matter to other people who are listening and watching. You're definitely not timorous. <laughs> Least you said. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is the final episode of this first series of How I Found My Voice. So until next season, a goodbye from me, Samira Ahmed, and the producer, Farah Jasset. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, 
and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.